0: Well, in our passage this morning, folks, we see one image that's repeated over and over and over again. The text tells us, by this one thing, the Israelites were liberated. They were saved by the strength of His hand. That's the phrase that we read several times in this passage. It's not Pharaoh's capitulating. It's not Moses' speeches. It's not Aaron's miracles. It is by the strong hand of the Lord that the sons and daughters of Israel are rescued from Egyptian slavery. You know, that image of the Lord's strong and mighty hand is one we find all over the Bible. David, for instance, tells us in Psalm 8 that the heavens, the sun, the moon, and the stars are the work of the Lord's fingers while Isaiah prophesies in chapter 48 of his book that the Lord's own hand has founded the earth. And we even read in Solomon's great wisdom in in Proverbs 21, a king's heart is, is like channeled water in the Lord's hand. he directs it wherever he chooses. So the image of the Lord's hand comes to us all throughout the Scripture showing God's power, His might, His provision and His providence. And we see meditations of this image all throughout church history as well. Whether it's in the ancient early church, we see the icons featuring Salvatore Mundi. That is the Savior of the world. An image of Jesus. And in His his hand, He is holding a globe in it. And on top of the globe is a cross signifying that by that cross, that is how the globe is saved. That is how... His people are saved. But we have more recent images. One that we see with the rising popularity of the African-American spiritual. He's got the whole world in His hands. We all know that one. He's got the whole world in His hands. He's got the wind and rain in His hands. He's got the little tiny baby in His hands. He's got you and me, brother or sister, in His hands. The strength of this passage comes from the strength of the lord's hand whether it's the exodus of the hebrews from slave labor or uh, or slave labor under the egyptians or whether it's our own exodus from under the enslaving power of sin all of this is accomplished not by us but by the lord's strong hand whether it's the passover feast of the israelites celebrating their deliverance through a blood sacrifice, or our Passover meal at Christ's Supper table, we know that all of this comes to us from the gracious provision of our Lord's strong hand. And so, remember, as we, uh, as we conclude our study of the plagues today, the plagues of Egypt, and we look forward to the promised land of Israel, remember that every square foot, every millisecond of time all of this is accomplished for us by the strength of the Lord's hand. Now remember that last week, God announced a final blow against Egypt. And against specifically Egypt's gods, the most sinister, the most subtle god of all, the god of the human self. While all the other gods of the Egyptian pantheon have, have been lost to time, the self is something we still worship in our day and age. See, Pharaoh was believed by his, his particular culture's uh, mythology to be a god incarnate himself. And so his progeny were then gods in the making. And the Egyptians, even if they didn't consider themselves to be gods in the sense that Pharaoh, they believed, was a god, Egypt itself acted like a nation of little gods, controlling the lives of people that they could oppress. Their entire culture was predicated on self-worship. The enriching of themselves at the expense and the exploitation of other people. In this case, especially the Hebrews. And nine times, we've, we've seen this over the course of the last few weeks, nine times God has warned the Egyptians. Pharaoh in particular, the Egyptians um, uh, in general, that they must repent of their ways. Repent of this savagery, whether active or passive. Repent officials. Repent commoners. But what we see is the majority of the heart of the Egyptians is hardened just like Pharaoh. And so God announced His final and most devastating blow. Since all the pantheon has come crumbling down and they're still not paying attention, He announces the death of every firstborn in the land. And there's no discrimination here. Rich or poor. Human or animal. Anybody that is not finding themselves under a a substitute, under a sacrifice, will find that their firstborn will die. See, the Lord was fast bound to save His firstborn Son of all the nations, Israel from slavery, at any cost. And so, if Pharaoh doesn't let Israel go, the Lord would take His Son in exchange. And the plan was in motion with no way to stop it. The the plague has been announced except there was one way to avoid its terrible power. And that's where we talked about last week the Passover sacrifice. See, Moses also issued a command from the Lord, to any and all who'd listen, that if they um, each family were to take one perfect, blemishless, spotless little lamb, they would care for it in their home for several days until twilight on Passover. And then they would do something that seems unthinkable in our modern day. They would take it outside and they would slaughter it. And they would take the blood of that precious little lamb and do something so bizarre, they would paint it over the the doorpost of their home. They would go inside with the, the poor little dead lamb and they'd prepare it and, and roast it over the fire and eat it, finding sustenance from it. But they wouldn't eat it in a in a, a casual way, no, they would eat it with their, their backpacks on their back, their staffs in their hand, their sandals on their feet, ready to go at a moment's notice. And when morning broke, they leave their shackles behind for good. And this morning, we read, by the strength of His hand, we see their freedom finally come to fruition. The thing that we've been waiting on since we began this book is finally arrived. But that freedom comes under such terrible circumstances. So look with me in this first portion of our passage this morning. See, in verses 29 and 30, we read one of the most bone chilling things we've read in the book so far. The aftermath of the Lord's final strike. At midnight we read the Lord passes over Egypt and strikes every firstborn of the land. And we see whether it's Pharaoh sitting on his throne or the prisoner in the dungeon. It doesn't matter. Uh, Cast doesn't matter anymore. Class doesn't matter anymore when it comes to judgment from the Lord. And so we see that every, even the firstborn of the livestock, every firstborn son is struck dead. And in the middle of the night, for no particular reason, it seems Pharaoh gets up, and so do his officials, and so does all the land of Egypt, and they make the most terrible discovery yet that their firstborn sons are dead. We can hardly fathom what that would be like. I remember about this time last year in our own neighborhood, uh, we heard a horrible shrieking cry on a Sunday afternoon. And uh, you remember this story: uh, a woman down the street went to check on her adult sons and found that they had been murdered. And the and the cry of that woman on. Upon that discovery, I'll never forget it. But I I, I can't imagine how horrible it would be if every house in our neighborhood, every uh, neighborhood in our community, every community in our county, every county in our state offered up this terrible shriek in unison. We can hardly fathom the horror of hearing their loud wailing piercing the night. But in some sense, we see how the story has come full circle now. Because remember, when Exodus begins, it begins with the despairing cry of the Israelites. They're groaning from their suffering, from their unjust treatment. And their groans and their cries ascend to the ears of the Lord. He hears and He knows and He sees them. And He tries to rescue them without any bloodshed, without any without any trauma, and yet sin is sunk so deep into the heart of this civilization that they refused all of God's signs and wonders until now. And so a horrible mirror image of the Israelites crying out in pain is now the loud wailing of the Egyptians as they find their firstborn no longer alive. But folks, this is no cause for celebration for the Israelites. Lutheran commentator Terence uh, Fratham notes, neither relish or revelry is to be seen in the camp of Israel. Nor do we see any divine pleasure from God at the suffering of the Egyptians. After all, we must remind ourselves that the Lord Himself in the book of Ezekiel twice tells us that the Lord takes no pleasure in the death of sinners. Paul likewise tells Timothy that the Lord wants everyone, He wishes everyone to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. I hope we as Christians will take after our Lord in this and not take pleasure in the demise of even our worst enemies. I'll never forget the heartbreak I felt expressing my sadness with a group of Christians over the trouble that was in a friend of mine's life who was an atheist, proud atheist. And he was having these interpersonal turmoils and I was expressing that. And and I was sad for him. He's my friend. And I'll never forget one fellow Christian mockingly saying, well, it's his bacon that's going to fry, not yours. I'm personally convinced that so many of our neighbors in this land don't take our evangelical faith very seriously because they see that in our hearts we are as hateful towards our enemies as the rest of the world. They don't see love in evangelical churches. They see hate for people that are different than us. People that go against us. And I, I, I'm, I'm so convinced, church, that that is a real problem in our churches these days. We don't wrestle, however, against flesh and blood, we must remember. And we certainly don't rejoice in the destruction of God's image bearers, even if we think they had it coming. Well, guess what? So do we and if it weren't for the divine forbearance and love of our Lord, if it weren't for Jesus taking pity on His enemies and sinners, none of us would be standing here today. Folks, we must rejoice in the eradication of sin, the vanquishing of death, but in the salvation of any sinner. We don't rejoice in the destruction, the death of evil people, We rejoice that God spares evil people. He spared us, after all. We do thank God that He is just. That He deals with evil people. That wicked regimes come to an end. That evil schemes uh, fall apart in the end. But we never rejoice in the destruction of sinners. For a final time, Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron. But for the first time we read he calls them in the middle of the night. He cannot wait till the morning when Moses has been wont to bother Pharaoh. Get out immediately. We hear a, a change in the tenor of his voice here. Take your men, take your women, your children, and even take your herds. Pharaoh's been in the past, you know, okay, take your able bodied men, but not the women and children. Okay, take the whole families, but don't take the herds. Now he says, take every last part of you and your people and get out of my sight. That's an astonishing thing. But even more astonishing is that this is the first time that he calls them Israelites. See, up until this point, he's just been calling them Hebrews. Hebrews can be kind of a generic word. It can be even kind of a derogatory word used in the right context. Oh, they're just a wandering bunch of mutts. They're just a nomad people. They're not a real nation. They're not a real people to be feared. But now, for the first time, he calls them Israelites. I think he's beginning to finally see after all this, that whoever this Israel is and whoever this God is, that he should finally pay attention. And the most astonishing thing of all, I think, is as he's sending them out the door, He says and also bless me. But sadly it seems that just like before, this is as hollow a request as ever, as we'll especially see when we get to chapter fourteen soon. But some things have changed. While Pharaoh seems to be of same old self, some things have changed. Because remember last week Isaiah showed us a future when even Egypt worshiped the lord at some indeterminate time in the future when they were as near and dear to the lord as the israelites and were reminded of this again in verses 33 through 36 that many of the egyptians finally got the point where pharaoh didn't they feared the lord and they knew if they persisted in enslaving israel that not only would their sons die but all of them would die So they, some of them packed their bags and left. But some that stayed behind even before the Israelites exited gave freely to the Israelites. We read that the Israelites followed the word of Moses and they asked the Egyptians for silver and gold for clothes and provisions. And miraculously, the Lord granted them favor. They left. With all they asked, and in this way we read, they plundered the Egyptians, they picked them clean. Now there are plenty of interpretations of what exactly is happening here. Some think that this is kind of a subtle deception that they're saying, Let us borrow some things to worship and uh, uh and we'll return them to you at a later date. And some think that, oh well this is really what this is is divinely appointed reparations. This is for all the years of slavery that Israel has endured. There's plenty of interpretive modes to go in in handling this. And, And by whatever means that we end up interpreting this or coming to believe is happening here, what's abundantly clear is that by the strength of the Lord's hand, Israel is marching out of the land not with their tail tucked between their legs, with their heads hanging low, but they're marching out of the land as victorious conquerors. Not Egyptian fear, not Israelite guile has accomplished this, but the strength of the Lord's hand has sent them out from not only from under slavery, but now has sent them out well prepared for their journey ahead. Now to this day, we're not really sure of, of, some, of the, the, some of the historical details that we read about next. Where exactly was the land of Goshen? We're not sure. Ramesses or Sakoth, where are they located? We're not totally clear about. Even the number of Israelites leaving is, is, is not as certain as we'd like it to be. The Hebrew word that's used here is elet when it talks about 600 Alep. Now sometimes elet can just be translated blankly as a thousand, but because we're, because the Lord keeps talking about military divisions, it's very likely that He's referring to, uh, military clans here. So those clans could have up to a thousand people in them. So are 600,000 people leaving the land or 600 military units of maybe up to a thousand people leaving? Even of that, we're not totally sure what the, what's the author is intending. And we're not sure is in verse 38, who all is in this mixed crowd? We read that a mixed crowd is, is leaving Egypt. Now that could be some other Semitic peoples that have been enslaved or leaving. And it's, it's very likely implied that some of the Egyptians even are leaving and being grafted into Israel's life under the Lord. So here's what we don't know. We don't know exact locations. We don't know exact number and we don't know exact people groups. But what we so clearly know, what is crystal is that that a new future, a new way forward is being forged by the strong hand of the Lord. That's what we do know. So often in our life, we don't know what our future is going to be like. We don't know what people are going to be in it. We don't know how many numbers we'll have. We don't know what resources we have. We don't know anything um, that we'll be going into the future with. Those things can seem all uncertain. Where will we live? Where will we work? Where will we worship? Who will be there with us? How will we provide? How will we make money? We don't know those things. But we do know that by the Lord's strong hand, He guides us towards His promised land. Well, indeed, these people began their exodus. and They began by celebrating this festival of unleavened bread on the go. And after 430 years, a staggering amount of time, 430 years of slavery as the Lord warned Abraham and Genesis would be the case for His people. And this evening as they leave, a night vigil is kept by all of Israel's military divisions and all their annexed peoples because by the Lord's strong hands, the promises of Genesis are coming to fruition now in Exodus. These people have come and gone generation after generation. Hundreds of years have passed. And it seems like they've been living in suffering and silence alone. But by the Lord's strong hand, His promises are now coming true for them. And what exactly are those promises? What are those blessings? Well, it's that through Israel and through Abraham's seed, all the world all the nations, tribes, languages, and peoples will be blessed. That the strong hand of the Lord is working out salvation of the human race. And indeed, as the New Testament shows us, this is the trajectory of Israel's story. This is where we go from here on out. But this makes the rest of chapter 12, I don't know about you, but reading over this recently was, was jarring. Because at first glance, it seems like the Lord, although He promised to be a blessing to all nations, now it seems like He's making special effort to keep those nations out of His blessings. He's boxing out people groups, other ethnicities, from partaking in the blessing, from being a part of the, the Passover feast. So what's going on here? And verse 43 of chapter 12, we read that the Lord tells Israel through Moses and Aaron that the Passover tradition is for them and that no foreigner may eat it. He elaborates though. He says a temporary resident or hired worker from the outside are not allowed to participate. But if you have a servant or slave that's in your house, they can do it. But don't even eat it out in the open where outsiders, where others can see it. Keep it to yourselves. To me, this seems so bizarre in reading this. After all this, it's the Lord is is, is opening His blessing; He's extending it into the nations. And then immediately we find that it seems once they're free, then they're instead of this the the blessing pouring out to everybody, it seems like He's with a tight fist, clenching it back to Israel. I don't know about you, that just seems bizarre to me. It seems like the Lord is really fencing off His Passover blessing. Is this really only for the Israelites? Well, the answer, I believe, is yes. But it's not for the reasons that we think, typically. It's not that God doesn't want other ethnicities or other cultures to partake. We see all throughout the Scriptures, and we'll see this in the law, the establishment of God's law with the Israelites, He's very welcoming of foreigners. He's anything but unwelcoming. Throughout Israel's history, we see time and again The Lord welcomes the immigrant and the stranger. Some of the people that play a a, a powerful role in Israel's history. Rahab, Caleb, others aren't even of Israelite descent themselves. So what's going on here? The point of this, I believe, and to quote Old Testament scholar Christopher Wright, is not for us to ask, whom must we keep out of the feast?" but who may be welcomed into it? Not who must be kept out, but who may be welcomed into it? See, the Lord goes on to show that our little games of identity politics we play here on planet Earth don't seem to matter to Him near as much as we'd like them to. Because He says in in verse 48, if an alien, that is an immigrant, resides among you and wants to observe the Lord's Supper, or the Lord's Passover rather, every male in his household must be circumcised and then he may participate and he will become like a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person may eat it. See, church, what's being set up here, what's what's becoming clear, is what doesn't matter. Here, let me tell you the things that don't matter to the Lord when it comes to those who worship Him. These don't matter. It doesn't matter your country of origin. It doesn't matter the language you speak is your mother tongue. It doesn't matter what your level of education is. It doesn't matter your tax bracket, your family name, your voter ID card, your career path, or any of the human hierarchies that we like to place ourselves in. What matters to the Lord is no matter where you're from, no matter what's back there in the past, what matters is that you have a believing and obedient heart now. Everyone, everyone, without exception, was welcomed into Israel's blessing. But when you come to celebrate the Lord's deliverance of His people, you don't come as a stranger. You come now as part of the family. It was to be as one fully committed to the Lord. In that day, it was through the sign of circumcision. This showed that the people were set apart in a way. That that the people of that family were for the Lord or were with the Lord. And that they would keep His commandments. So what matters is not kinship. It's not ethnicity. It's not race. It's not nation. What matters is a covenant faith. See, all are welcome to become a part of God's chosen people, whether they're Israelite or Egyptian or even American. All are welcome. But the Passover of old and the new Passover, the Lord's Supper, will mean nothing to those who don't partake of this in trust and hope and obedience and faith. It's not an empty ritual just to be taken in lightly. This is is something that's given to the community of God that, that partners that covenants with God that is committed to the Lord and His mission for this world. See, folks, this meal is not free of cost. When we come to the Lord's supper table, it's free of charge for us, but it's not free of cost. Not for everyone. In chapter 13, we read that the Lord's Uh, final command in regards to the Exodus and the Passover in this passage is that every firstborn male, whether human or animal, be consecrated to the Lord. Every firstborn son of a woman is to be redeemed from the priest for a cost. And every firstborn son of an animal is to be sacrificed in worship. And we, like the children of Israel, may ask, What does this mean? What does this symbolize? And the Lord's answer is to remind you that by the strength of His hand, you were saved from slavery. But it was a costly salvation. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to release you, Egypt, or released you from the Egyptians, Israel, the Lord secured it. He secured your release but it costs the firstborn of the Egyptians for you to be delivered. So let this be a symbol on your foreheads so that whatever you think throughout your day, you'll remember by the strength of His hand you've been redeemed. Let this be a sign on your hands so that whatever you do throughout the day, that by the strength of His own hand you were saved. Remember, Israel, when the firstborn animal is slaughtered, that your firstborn son can be redeemed. That when one is taken away, when one's life is extinguished and its blood is spread, that is so that the other may walk free. Remember that blood was shed so that you could have your freedom. Folks, we come here today in peace and in hope and worship and in fellowship, free of charge, but not free of cost. Because when we were enslaved to the powers of this world, when politicians only saw us as a vo- voting block, and corporations only saw us as a market share, when the world said that we only mattered if we were talented enough, smart enough, attractive enough, uh, productive enough, or whatever else, when the doctors, lawyers, mayors, family, or friends could not save us from our mental despair, from our aging bodies, from our cruel, cruel world, we needed a substitute, and more than that, we needed a sacrifice. And by the strength of His hand, we read, the Lord sent His own firstborn son. The New Testament says He's the firstborn of Mary. And more than that, He is the firstborn over all creation. And stunningly, He is the firstborn among the dead not only to be our substitutes, but also to be our sacrifice. See, in Jesus Christ, we find both the firstborn human Son and the firstborn Lamb. Because Jesus is the, is the human being that sets our humanity free. But He's also the Lamb of God that pays the ultimate price so that we might go free. Jesus was the Lamb of God slain for us. His blood shed on the cross was painted over the doorway of our lives. And by the strength of His nail-pierced hands, He saved us from the power of sin, from the tyranny of death. But sometimes, perhaps we forget that. Sometimes we get discouraged in our lives. Sometimes we think the Lord doesn't care about me. We protest like the Israelites in Isaiah's day. The Lord has abandoned me. The Lord has forgotten me. But how does the Lord reply to our doubts? Isaiah tells us that the Lord says to us, can a woman forget her nursing child? or lack compassion for the child of her womb, even if she could forget, I would not forget you, Israel. Look, I have inscribed you on the palms of My hands. You are continually before Me. Our names are graven on His hands. Our names are written on His heart. I know that while in heaven He stands, no tongue, no doubt, no war, no plague, no sin, no sorrow can bid me thence depart. No matter what this world has in store for us in the future, we know that our Jesus is the Salvatore Mundi. The Savior of the world. Our Savior has overcome this world. And indeed, by His strong hand, we read that He holds everything in the palm of His hand. Let's pray. Lord, by the strength of Your hand, keep us and save us. May You be ever in our minds, ever in our hearts, ever in our hands. Let everything we think, say, or do be for Your glory and for the good of those around us. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus, Your Son, our substitute, our sacrifice, and our Savior. Amen.